WMCHD3 Detroit, KMPS HD3 Seattle, WBMX HD3 Boston, and on AOL Radio and Yahoo Launchcast, CBS Radio's The New Sky. Enlightened philosophers tell us that we are divine beings in human form. Let's get real here. How can we live a busy life with a job, kids, and a mortgage and still be spiritual? Join C.J. Liu as she tackles real-life issues through a spiritual lens and talks with experts in relationships, work, and more. You'll get practical life skills and learn how to touch, feel, and experience a whole new way of living. Be a force for good. And fire it up with CJ. Log on, fire it up with CJ.com and call CJ now. 248-545-SOLS. CBS Radio's The Sky. Welcome into Fired Up with CJ. I'm Cassandra and I'm here with you today. We are now. Hi, Hi, CJ. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is live from the headquarters of CBS. It's a Fired Up with CJ show. Now you can find us on FiredUpWithCJ.com. It is June, and in June, it's really all about the focus of this month is exploring what it will take to live in balance and harmony uh, with the environment. Uh, so... Today, we actually uh, are going to uh, take this opportunity because it's halfway through the year. Can you believe that? I, I can't. I'm, I, I refuse. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I know. It's just kind of shocking to think that we're halfway through the year. And I actually thought, well, let's use this as an opportunity to contemplate, you know, how things are going. And uh, today we're going to be looking at um, the limits of the Earth's capacity to serve us. I mean, it's becoming clearer that, you know, we're going to hit limits. It's kind of like we've been on, a, on an all-day-eating all buffet, and we have stopped. <laughs> and at one point, there will be limits on uh, how much we can consume. So today we talked to Stan Cox, author of Losing Our Cool. Um, who was named by Atlantic Magazine in 2012 the Reader's Choice for being a brave thinker. And a brave thinker is someone who they defined as someone who's risked their reputation, fortunes, and, live, and lives in pursuit of big ideas. So today we're going to be discussing his next big idea. So welcome, Stan. Oh, hi, CJ. <laughs> it's great to have you here, and I'm excited to talk about your book your new book, Any Way You Slice It, The Past, Present, and Future of, your new idea is? Rationing. Rationing. <laughs> I didn't cue it up. Maybe I should have had a drum roll. Would that have been better? <laughs> right. Well, uh, yeah, that, it's been uh, referred to as the equivalent of uh, shouting an obscenity in church. So yeah, a lot of people don't like to hear the word. I know. I love one of the reviews on your um, book review on Amazon. It's like, next to hemorrhoids, people do not right. want to talk about rationing. And, in fact, when I was writing the marketing promotions, I thought, I don't know if I can use the word rationing because people have such a negative reaction to it. It's kind of sad. Well, people, when I was going to be writing the book, there were people who said, well, use some other words, but I – I thought it's better to attack the uh, the uh, concept head on because uh, a lot of people who don't think that um, we're consuming too much or affecting their ecosystems too much uh, and don't want to see us pull back that that's the word they use they they say well if we do that we'll have rationing um, 
not realizing or not admitting anyway that uh, we ration all the time. It's just a matter of how to ration. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of budgeting. Do people have less of a response to budgeting or do people have a negative response to that as well? Um, well, you know, people, yeah, that's uh, a pretty well accepted uh, idea of budgeting, but it's somewhat uh, different from the uh, available uh, supply of something is not sufficient to meet uh, all the demand for it. And generally that happens because of some kind of an emergency or war or other um, uh, calamities, but it could also happen if we intentionally try to limit the quantities of resources we use or uh, the quantities of pollution we mm-hmm. produce. Uh, what, that's really the, the big decision is to put limits around our economy. If we did that, then um, if prices then were just left to do what they would do, they would go up because there'd be a lower supply and more demand. That becomes very unfair for a large segment of the population who would no longer be able to afford what they need. Mm-hmm. And that's when some kind of fair shares uh, rationing becomes necessary. Right. So I, you were cutting in and out, but what I think I heard you say is that at one point we're going to have a limit in our supply of these valuable resources, whether it's uh, – the amount of carbon emissions that the earth can take or the amount of water or even the amount of health care that we consume. And so in, if we were to let market economy dictate, then what would happen is those supplies diminish, the prices would go up. But when we start thinking about the prices going up for water, then that's a fairness issue, which is, does that mean, is it fair for certain people to have water and, other, and others not to? Is that what you meant by that? When I, I missed parts of what yeah. you said because you're fading in and out. Sorry. Right. Yeah, sorry. I'm, uh, uh, yes, that's right. And water is uh, a resource that we're accustomed to uh, seeing rationed all the time. Uh, when uh, certain localities have a drought, they will... Um, limit lawn watering and, and things like that. More um, um, severe needs for rationing have come in wartime when uh, uh, there is a, a limit on what's available to the consumer economy because a lot of resources are going elsewhere. Um, and, uh, and, and that's when you uh, get this... Um, uh, often this hyperinflation, but if the government says, okay, we're limiting prices, there's not going to be war profiteering for basic essentials, the price is limited to this amount, then unless you have some fair shares um, method of sharing resources, you, you have a lot of uh, social strife and um, shortages and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the um, chapters that you have in the book is about water rationing. And what I thought was sad, um, but is the reality in cer- certain countries like India, is that, you know, people need at least 13 gallons of water to sustain just a quality of life, right, for just day-in, day-out use. And in those countries, people get less than that, right? I mean, so if the, in a world of rationing, we would have you know, 13 gallons of water each house. Is that what it would look like, or what do you think it would look like if we went to a world of rationing with water? 
Yeah, well, you know, uh, water um, is always a local uh, issue, and uh, there, are, you know, there are places in the world that are always going to be water limited in uh, mm-hmm. arid uh, regions mm-hmm. of the world, um, and then uh, there are other places where there are high densities of population, and, and that would be the case, say, in Mumbai, India, where the mm-hmm. the city goes to extraordinary efforts to get water to um, every part of town, and, and mm-hmm. a lot of places uh, don't get it at all. But I, if you look uh, at, if you do a news search in any given month uh, and search for water rationing, uh, it's it's happening somewhere in the world, many places in the world all the time. Um, recently in uh uh, Dublin, Ireland, of all places, uh, you know, very wet place. There, um, they they were having to uh, ration water. Um, it's a pretty much an everyday occurrence in uh, places like uh, Amman, Jordan, or cities I've lived in in India, where um, you uh, your water may only run for 30 minutes a day coming from the city, and so you better. Mm-hmm. Uh, get the water that you need during that time. Yeah, that that was that kind of a shocking. You don't you don't appreciate how critical water is until you think, oh, if I lived in Mumbai, there uh, Mumbai, you know, from eight to eight thirty, there's water coming out, and if I'm not there with my gallons of jugs of water, I'm not getting any water for the day or the week or whatever. I mean, it's kind of shocking, and because sometimes, and from what your book, it's sometimes water doesn't even come out every day. Is that right? Well, the thing that impressed me in that one uh, small neighborhood in Mumbai is the kind of social organization that's necessary to make sure that with only 30 minutes of water running and there's only one tap, it's a pretty high-volume tap, but there's only one tap running for 30 minutes, the highly uh, choreographed uh, routine that the people of the neighborhood go through filling pots and hauling them back to their homes, coming back and filling more, and they make allowances for people who live farther away, and everybody uh, gets what they need. But it's um, they they actually had to fight for that 8 to 8.30 p.m. slot. It was coming on at something like 3 in the morning, which is oh my God. totally unacceptable. <laughs> oh, my God. I hope we don't reach that point. I mean, when when you and, and as I was reading through your your book, I I kept on thinking, when when will this happen to us? Is this going to happen to me when I'm 90, or going to happen to my kids? I mean, when when do you think, you know, based on all of the research that you did, is rationing? You're I'm, I'm part of what I'm hearing you say. Rationing is already a reality. So get over your issues with the word rationing and whatever thing it means to you because it's happening already. But when do you see this as being a uh, worldwide phenomenon? Right. It, it kind of depends on which um, resources we're talking about. And I, the the four that I focused on were um, uh, energy and carbon emissions, which. Uh, can kind of or sort of rationed at the same time um, than water, food, and medical care. Mm-hmm. Um, medical care, as you as you say, a lot of like a lot of resources, it's already uh, being rationed right now. We do it by discriminating against certain groups of people, like those who don't have adequate 
uh, health insurance. A more sensible rationing would involve discriminating against ineffective uh, treatments that are not worth uh, the cost. And that mm-hmm. um, is pro- that could be where, if we finally come to our senses, that may be where we first see um, rationing. It, it, and it has happened in, in some parts of the world. The uh, the thing with carbon emissions is interesting. That is a true rationing isn't happening anywhere right now, but there have been you know, proposals um, discussed in uh, Britain about how a nation could um, uh, assign a certain annual quantity of carbon emissions that's the, the right of every citizen and you would receive credits every year into your carbon account to um, uh, produce that many emissions when and, and you would have to spend those credits when you buy um, fuel for your car or pay your utility bills uh, th- those would be the main places that you would uh, use them mm-hmm. uh, that is it was actually debated in Parliament it hasn't been passed into law there or uh, anywhere but that um, either rationing by carbon emissions or uh, rationing uh, fossil fuel use could, uh, in the next couple of decades, uh, we could see that. Yeah, and it would make sense that that would happen. I I guess the thing that's interesting and the point that you bring up in the book is we have to start rationing because – you know, oil will run out, and it will run out. There's not as if we can ration something that doesn't exist. Right. right? And, and even if um, you know, people are very impressed now by these huge reserves of unconventional oil, and even if we did decide to um, uh, exploit those at the huge uh, environmental costs that it would uh, require, and even if we did get access to a lot more natural gas and oil, that that would be an even bigger disaster if we decided we would burn it at the uh, con- the, the current um, increasing rate around the world that we are. So it's going to be a case of the, uh, a kind of an unprecedented thing. Rationing before has always been done in the, the case of um, – absolute scarcity where scarcity is imposed by some outside mm-hmm. forces this would have to be a voluntary kind of scarcity where we said mm-hmm. there is a ceiling as a nation or a world that we're, we're not going to burn more fossil fuels than this um, each year and then figure out how to live within that limit mm-hmm All right, so we're going to be talking more about that precisely, fossil fuels and greenhouse emissions and what rationing may look like. We talked about England, but we're going to dive into that a little bit more. So we have Stan Cox, whose book, Any Way You Slice It, um, looks at a potential future of what we'll encounter if we don't have voluntary limits on ourselves, if we don't stop ourselves from eating at the all-you-can-eat buffet. It is not an all-you-can-eat buffet. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the chicken runs out eventually. Exactly. Okay, folks, make sure to subscribe to us by going to www.fireitupwithcj.com, and you'll get a schedule of upcoming shows, articles, and be eligible to win freebies. We'll be right back. <laughs> 
CBS Radio's The Sky. The Sky. Now back to Fire It Up with CJ. Be a force for good. And fire it up with CJ. Log on, fire it up with CJ.com. And call CJ now. 248 545 7685. On CBS Radio's The Sky. Sky. Welcome back. Today we have Stan Cox, who the Atlantic Magazine names in its 2012 Reader's Choice as a brave thinker. Fans out there, make sure you get more shows like this one at FiredUpWithCJ.com. I'm Cassandra, live from CBS Sky Radio, and we're going to go right back to CJ and Stan. Hey, welcome back, everyone. I'm CJ Liu, and as Kermit the Frog said... It ain't easy being green. And it's especially hard for us Americans. The Global Footprint Network looked at the world's ecological footprint, and it looked at the resource consumption and waste production and the Earth's biological capacity to absorb the footprint. So based on how we're consuming right now, can the Earth take it? And the bad news is in order to reach Earth's capacity, we have to reduce our global footprint by 45% to be brought in line with the global biocapacity. And sorry, Americans, but our situation is even worse. If equity and fairness was an issue and we were to put our numbers in line with the rest of the world, as Americans, we would have to shrink our footprint by 80%. So um, hard news, I know. And I think it, you know one of the reactions that could happen is people can go like, I don't want to hear it, shut your ears off and go into a state of denial. Like, just let's hope this isn't true and CJ's wrong with her numbers. I hope this doesn't happen. <laughs> and I think that that's a, um, an understandable reaction, but also I think we need to face the facts. This reality is hitting us and the world can't take our consumption anymore. So I would encourage folks who are kind of in that state of like, oh my God, I just want to shut everything off. Um, yeah, shut off your air conditioning and your heat, <laughs> but don't shut off the show. All right, so we have our next guest, Stan Cox, and we're going to be looking at what the world would look like if we had greenhouse emissions. Welcome back, Stan. Uh, good to be here. So I was, um, I found the options um, uh, interesting and kind of alarming at the same time in terms of if we were to reduce our overall greenhouse emissions. There's policies out there about cap-and-trade, taxes, and even birth rationing as ways of um, lowering our emissions. Can you step us through what some of those things are and how they work? Um, yes. The, um, uh, pr- probably the most um, uh, widely discussed uh, uh, possibility for a long time has been uh, a carbon tax, which uh, NASA scientist James Hansen has pushed for a long time, and as have others, um, that would uh, be a kind of an indirect way of trying to reduce emissions by uh, putting a tax on fossil fuels, which would raise the price of fuels along with uh, a lot of other things that the fuels are necessary for uh, producing. Uh, that would also create some un- unfairness because uh, lower-income households would have a harder time. Um, part of the plan would be, though, to take the revenues from the tax and uh, reimburse everyone on a, a per capita basis. So uh, that that would in- reintroduce some fairness, but it still would uh, 
would be a kind of it would be a very indirect and not uh not as fair way of trying to um reduce emissions as uh, a more explicit rationing. Uh, yeah, and, and when I read your book, it was like, so let's say that right now in Seattle, a gallon of gas is $4, that this tax may make, I mean, the example that you use in your book, is a, if I understood it correctly, was that I paid $8 a gallon. Or, you know, some large tax, it wouldn't be like four fifty. it would be $8, in which case the fairness issue comes along where you say, well, not everyone can afford $8 per gallon with that kind of tax. And so the reimbursement would be like, okay, for those people who, you know, we're going to take the, that $4 excess and invest it in, in what? What would they be investing that $4 in and what would the reimbursement be? I mean, how, how would that work? Well, I, I assume it would uh, come back like your uh, income tax refund every year. Everybody would get a, a check. So that would not only um, recycle the money from the tax, but it would um, serve as, uh, just like those other refunds do, as an economic stimulus, which would um, encourage further consumption and uh, partially negate some of the effect uh, of the tax. Um, and nobody knows how high the uh, taxes would have to be to successfully reduce consumption um, so um, and, and rationing really wouldn't be a direct alternative to that the direct alternative to that uh, carbon tax would be to have it as I was talking about before a, a absolute limit in terms of barrels or of oil or tons of coal um, mm-hmm. that the nation would uh, not exceed, and then, uh, and, and that should decline over time. And then, when, and in trying to figure out how to make sure everybody has sufficient access to resources, that, that's when, un, under that ceiling, then that, that's when uh, some type of rationing would become necessary. Yeah, so in that particular case, let's say that, you know, CJ gets, CJ gets 20 gallons of, you know, oil, Stan gets 20 gallons of oil, you know, whomever is out there, everyone gets 20 gallons of of oil or so many, so much of uh, a card of energy that we can consume with the corresponding carbon emissions associated with it. And then, as I understand it, so we would get a card of some sort. I think that's what England was proposing, right? It was a card of some sort that they put a limit on. Is that right? Am I getting my right. data correct? That's right. And, then, and yeah, and the uh, you know, the trucking lines would only get so much oil, and uh, Google would get only uh, so much electricity to run their servers, and so everybody would be working out their, the most efficient. Um, way they could do what they need to do given those uh, limitations. Yeah, and then in that particular case, as I understand it, let's say that CJ gets 20 gallons, and because I'm so energy efficient and smart about the way, and I ride my bike everywhere, whatever, I only use 10 gallons, then I could either take that 10 gallons and trade it in or get money or sell it back. Is that the idea of the trade, the cap and the trade part? Is that the same idea as cap and trade? Well, well, the the what we're used to talking uh, about with cap and trade is at the uh, the national level and involving the um, 
uh, get, say, utilities or, you know, heavy industry and mm-hmm. uh, governments and, and corporations. But we, um, but the, uh, the British proposals for carbon rationing have incorporated that very thing you're describing, a, a kind of a, a personal cap and trade so that if you uh, either are very responsible or you're poor and just can't afford to spend all of your carbon credits, either way you could uh, sell them into a national carbon market and, and get money. And people who um, uh, have used up their credits and, and uh, need to get to work or <laughs> whatever could buy at a pretty stiff price, they could buy credits uh, that you've sold and uh, be able to uh, buy more fuel. But the overall, that would keep the overall um, level of uh, of carbon emissions at a constant level. Right. So then we could really truly ration where the overall supply would be monitored versus the taxes. Who knows if you would hope there's this hope that this indirect way would limit the amount of consumption and so, and keep our supplies lowered, but who knows if that would happen. But this in, in the cap personal cap and trade, that would be kind of insured. But we would have to avoid the mistakes that have been made in the, the international cap and trade schemes in which um, you, there are ways to uh, buy out of limits with these um, uh, offsets where you can get credits by paying somebody to plant trees in Indonesia or something. Yeah, and right. There are a lot of very shady right. uh, uh, things going on in uh, ways that they can lift the cap or put you know, pressure valves and all these things. And so right. it would it would have to be a very firm cap that there, there are no escape hatches from. Yeah, we can't have actually these loopholes. Um, so we have Stan Cox, author of Any Way You Slice It. And in the next segment, we're going to be talking about rationing of health care. So online folks, make sure to go to www.firedupwithcj.com to get a schedule of upcoming shows. We'll be right back. CBS Radio's The Sky. The Sky. Now back to Fire It Up with CJ. Be a force for good and fire it up with CJ. Log on, fire it up with CJ.com and call CJ now. 248 545 7685. On CBS Radio's The Sky. Sky. Welcome back. Our guest today is author Stan Cox talking about his new book, Any Way You Slice It. I'm Cassandra from CBS Sky Radio, and we're going to go right back to CJ and Stan. Hey, welcome back, everybody. So now we're going to be talking about health care and um, the exponential growth of health care. And at one point, as everything else, we're going to have a limit. In fact, we probably, one would argue, already do have limits in health care. And I wanted to bring um, two examples that Stan brings up in his book, Any Way You Slice It. And this gives you a sense of the ethical dilemmas that we are going to have been and continue to approach um, as our health care costs escalate. So here's the question for you. You have two candidates for a life-saving treatment. A life-saving treatment. One is a 20-year-old who will live for 50 years after the treatment. The second person is an 85-year-old who will live for another year after the treatment. Who would you save? So ponder that. Here's the second example uh, that gives you a sense of the ethics involved with limiting health care. 
let's say that there's a special heart pump that costs about $200,000. There's technology, it's $200,000 per heart pump. It would benefit 200,000 people and cost $40 million. And as a result of that heart pump, it would give the recipient one to two years more of life. So if we have to put limits on how much we're spending in healthcare, should we spend the $40 million and have that permissible in our healthcare costs? So those are, I don't know, to me those were incredible examples that made me really think about, wow, I understand the dilemma. It's easy to be protesting and throwing tomatoes at Obama and like, wow, you know, I don't like this, but there's there's some real issues. So welcome, Stan. Yeah, Yeah, you're you're right. In in trying to um, sort out how rationing works and how it should work and uh, and with various other resources, it, it was fairly easy to come to some conclusions with health care it's uh, it, it's such a uh, contentious area and we're dealing with such such uh, deep-seated feelings that it's really hard to see uh, what the the solution could be mm-hmm. um, well and uh, and I think one thing that you brought in um, brought in your first chapter or that first part of that section in your book as you said that if people were given a rational, like, here are the numbers, here's the analysis, they, they can easily make, like, well, of course, I would, I would opt for the 20-year-old versus the 85-year-old. And no, I wouldn't spend money on that heart pump. But if you have a dying person in front of you, the answers then get thrown up in the air, right? What was, I can't remember what you called that as an effect, but that's, yeah, that's the, exactly what, uh, what happens in these, uh, medical economists and philosophers. Talk about the uh, so-called rule of rescue, which says that if there is uh, if there is some um, treatment or procedure that can prolong or save or prolong the life of somebody um, and provide an actual benefit, then there's an obligation to use it. But it it doesn't uh, specify. Yeah, and, and this is just something that is seems to be in deep in people's brains but we aren't able to specify how big a benefit is it you know, mm-hmm. just a, a couple of days of life or is it another year living in uh, the miserable uh, conditions where uh, where do you draw the line and there there are some of these economists and philosophers who say uh, there is no line we just have to spend um, whatever uh, amount it's going to take, even with uh, uh, health care taking up 18% of our entire economy now and uh, scheduled to keep rising, um, it, it, do we really think, and, and with technology producing new treatments and procedures every year, many of them of uh, dubious value, but they they're there, and once they're in the doctor's arsenal, there's uh, uh, felt to be an obligation to use them. But we, at the same time, we have uh, over-treatment uh, being paid for out of this 18% of our GDP. We have under-treatment uh, at the same time. As we know, people who don't have enough money or insurance um, studies show consistently get much lower levels, quantity and quality of 
health care than people who do, and, and that mm-hmm. seems fundamentally unfair. Mm-hmm. I think one of the examples that you had in this particular chapter that I thought was illustrative of the things that you're talking about is that was it in Cuba where, you know, their health care is actually the actual results are pretty good, but they don't spend hardly as much money because they said this is how much we can spend on you. We're done, right? And and we're not going to give you the fancy pantsy whatever the newest technology is. We're going to give you what we know works and that's what all you, we can afford and we're done, right? Is that, is that yeah, in Cuba? I can't remember where that was. Right, that's one place where they you know, spend four uh, percent as much as we do per capita, um, and a lot of that is on uh, preventive medicine. And, and you know, we wouldn't. I'm not saying we should cut ninety six percent of our uh, health care spending, but we we do need to uh, um, think about things uh, reasonably. Um, we, there. We do have methods uh, for doing this, and that's in the case of absolute scarcity, where there isn't enough of a drug to go around, or mm-hmm. if there's an influenza emergency and there aren't enough respirators, and uh, or in the uh, organ transplant world, they've um, worked out the the uh, system for waiting lists and so forth that are um, quite elaborate and um or you know, very well thought out so we know how to do these things but um we we don't where what we don't know is uh, if if we have the capacity to uh produce these uh, medical products um uh how how do we decide whether they actually should be produced or not Mm-hmm. I thought that that was a really interesting point. So maybe we should limit the amount of medical technology that's out there. You know, because part of the reason why it's so hard to keep up with it and that these costs keep on going up is because all these technologies keep on going, getting, you know, getting introduced. And by the way, they're really expensive because their companies are trying to defer their R&D costs. So it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a crazy kind of cycle. And so you were talking about the, um, you know, cases of like the flu virus, right? Where a couple of years ago there was only a certain number of batches they underproduced the amount of uh, vaccines that they got, and in previous cases they've had limits on that. And and in that particular case, they did have some rationale, and people were okay with that, which was fascinating to me. I mean, we we were on the list, and we didn't get our flu vaccination till later. But I thought, you know what? Those people who are pregnant or Kids who are younger, people have, you know, asthma, they should get it before me. So I think people are okay with some of it, right? Right. And, and people are uh, sensible where, where we uh, always see um, r- what's called rationing by queuing or w- waiting in line is in the emergency room. And people accept the idea of triage very, uh, very easily that people who uh, need care the most urgently should be seen first. And if, yeah. if you're there uh, with a rash or something, you, you can wait until um, uh, until more urgent things are, are taken care of. Um, yeah. But um, one, um, one example here that uh, uh, they've just been talking about recently is the lack of development of new um, – Antibiotics. At the same time that we have these uh, multi-antibiotic uh, resistant 
bacteria Mm -hmm. out there, but it's not very profitable for companies. And so the drug companies are making uh, lifestyle drugs or other drugs that have to be taken every day and are expensive and Mm -hmm. uh, have basically stopped a lot of the research on new Mm -hmm. antibiotics, which could Mm -hmm. be the most critical drugs of all here one of these days. And... um, and so you, you do end up with uh, cases of rationing. Yeah. Well, the one that I didn't like, which you, so, you know, there's queuing, there's providing some set of, like, criteria on who gets what first as a limited resource. And like you said, whether it's the emergency room or the flu influenza, we're able to deal with that. I think people would have problems with the technology rationing. People, by meaning people, I mean healthcare companies. Um, <laughs> but I think the one I didn't like was lottery. Where it's oh. like, uh, we can't decide what we want to do, and everyone gets so pissed off if we put criteria, we're just going to do a lottery, and whoever we draw, number one, five, and ten, you will get saved, the rest of you, sorry. That's the only one I didn't like. Well, it, but it, it, there is a certain appeal in, in that, and it was first used in uh, very early antibiotic trials where they only had uh, a very limited quantity of antibiotic available, and to do a trial, you had to have people who were treated and those that weren't, and they determined that by lottery. And there have been people uh, who say we shouldn't um, we shouldn't play God and decide uh, who gets treatment when there are absolute shortages like that. And a lottery is the the fairest way. But then the response <laughs> it's like God, is, random and unpredictable. <laughs> but uh, people. Um, respond well. A lottery uh, could very easily give you the result that the uh, the 85 year old who's going to have a life extended a very short time would get the treatment, and the 20 year old would not. Um, and that you know, a lot of people see that as uh, unfair. Um, yeah. But at the same time, uh, there are accusations of age discrimination if you do. Yeah. Uh, talk about um, uh, rationing on on the basis uh, strictly of age, and that is usually considered out of bounds. But rationing on the basis of expected outcome is uh, more acceptable. All right, so folks, we have Stan Cox. We will be right back. CBS Radio's The Sky. The Sky. Now back to Fire It Up with CJ. Be a force for good and fire it up with CJ. Log on fireitupwithcj.com and call CJ now. 248-545-7685. Believe on CBS Radio's The Sky. Sky. Thank you for listening to Fire It Up with CJ. Today we have author of Any Way You Slice It, Stan Cox, here with us. And you can get this podcast and any show you like, any of CJ's past shows, on NewSkyRadio.com. And I believe you can also get it on iTunes. It takes about 24 hours. It's all free. So we're talking about, you know, saving and recycling and, you know, it, rationing. You can do all that for free. So if you want to <laughs> listen to any of CJ's past shows, that's where you go. You're getting fired up, huh, Cassandra? I, can I tell you. I love this topic. <laughs> I just circled the name of his book, and I'm taking taking this with me because I'm going to get this book because I believe in it. Yeah, and I think Good. folks should get the book. It's great. It's a great book. And, you know, I was ta- saying during the break, uh, what I appreciate most about this book, Stan, is that you're not guilting or shaming me about 
you know, changing my ways. It's more like, here are the facts. Do what, <laughs> what you want right. with them. But this is the reality that we're going to face. I greatly appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, guilt works in some areas of life, but not in, in the, on this issue. <laughs> yeah. <work. laughs> so I have a question. When you were writing this book, I mean, what's your net analysis? What do you feel hopeful about after doing all – it's very well researched. After doing all this research and thinking and writing – what do you feel hopeful about and what do you feel like somewhat hopeless about? <laughs> well, um, looking uh, back through the 20th century and then also looking around the world today at how people have um, reorganized uh, their uh, societies and communities and economies when faced with um, scarcity, um, that gives me hope because we um, generally seem to uh, decide in those situations to pull together. People tend to uh, prefer a system in which everybody's playing by the same rules and has mm-hmm. the same limits no matter um, who they are. Uh, they tend to prefer that to a kind of a war of all against all uh, and, and we seem to be able to accomplish it. The the problem is that we're can't become convinced that we're up against the wall now, and we wait until uh, systems really start to to break down. It's it's going to be much harder to uh, come up with these fair systems of, of sharing mm-hmm. under those conditions. We mm-hmm. we're we're not very well programmed for. Uh, preemptive uh, restraint and uh, I, I'm hoping that we can and that uh, collect a lot of individuals do but it needs to be um, yeah so what I'm hearing you say is that there's what makes you feel really hopeful is that when faced with scarcity it seems like if given enough forewarning and planning that we can actually do a pretty good job and distribute things fairly the problem comes and when we can't do a preemptive restraint and then what happens right um and we do um well uh, disasters are are a good example they're generally in the wake of a disaster mm-hmm. there's a tremendous amount of cooperation and even uh not not just heroism but there is a a lot of pulling together and and uh mutual aid and uh, but can we do that if it's not in 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 uh in the wake of a you know tragic Disaster. Right. If, if we can do it when that tragic disaster is up the road ahead before it happens. Right, right. So, if it, yeah, exactly. So, like, let's put something in place now before we have to kind of like it's a Mad Max world and people are taking guns and shooting people from water. <laughs> Whatever it may be. I talk about shooting people. Um, I, when we had talked earlier about the book, you said uh, you wrote a book called "Losing Our Cool," which you said you got death threats uh, because the idea of loosening our attachment to air conditioning was just so threatening to folks. Um, So I can only imagine what the reaction is to this current book. I mean, what? How are people reacting to you? Have you gotten triple the amount of death threats? I mean, what's happening right now for you? 
Well, I I had joked uh, that uh, in, uh, writing about air conditioning annoyed a, a lot of people, but I didn't think it annoyed enough people. So, so far, I've um, been kind of surprised at the the lack of um, really um, uh, hostile pushback that I I got when talking about air conditioning. I um, uh, I, I think I don't know if it's that people realize that something needs to be done, or if it, if they think, well, this what I'm talking about is such a remote uh, possibility, they're not too worried about it. And uh, it, it could be that uh, a lot of that um, hostility happened uh, during summer heat waves, and there's no climatic <laughs> event that gets people worked up about rationing. Right, right. Or maybe they're really hot. They were sitting in their car. They lost their air conditioning in their car. They're thinking about your book. <laughs> then they then they started writing you notes, threatening your life about them. Well, I, I, I have them. had really uh, uh, green type people um, pretty upset, saying. Look, don't use that word. We we you know, we need to get people um, more interested in these issues. And if you use that word, you're going to uh, drive them away. And as I said at the beginning, um, that word is it's going to be used. And so we sh- should probably try to um, demystify it and talk about it in a practical way, exactly. and not let it just be some vague threat that's lying out there in the future. So when a powder blue Prius comes gunning towards you, <laughs> it's one of these folks. Yeah, that's I drive I've got a powder look blue out Prius. <laughs> I can say that because I do drive a powder blue oh. Prius. <laughs> All right, so Sam, this is a fantastic book. Um, thank you so much for being here, and thank you. It really does take a lot of courage. I can see why you were nominated um, last year and probably this year by the Atlantic Magazine as being a brave thinker someone who's risked his reputation, fortunes, and lives in pursuit of a big idea. Because this is a big idea. It's a huge idea. And uh, I think a really important one that we need to discuss. So for writing this book, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you, CJ, for the opportunity to talk with you. And uh, where, what's your website if people want to learn more about this book? Can you tell us quickly your website? Sliceit.org. Sliceit.org. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, folks, so make sure to go to the um, Sam's website, too. Next week, we're going to talk to John Grimm, a senior lecturer and research scholar at Yale University on world religions and ecology and what does the role uh, religions have in teaching ethics about killing pa- plants, trees, etc. We'll be right. Uh, we'll have a great weekend, folks.